Now, some of you know this, and some of you don't, but we found out a couple months ago that our family was growing again. That's right, baby four is on the way. Yes, we're officially one of those families. Uh, I saw a mom at HEB the other week pushing uh, her four kids on a cart. There were two sitting in the top who were screaming, and then there was one hanging off the side of the cart, kind of like a firefighter, and then the oldest was walking like this in front of the cart. And I thought to myself, oh my God, that's my life, if curbside didn't exist. Thank God other people can shop for us. Um, Having said that, HEB is now sponsoring our live stream, so if you see a little ad pop up, uh, there you go. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, So shortly after we we told our big kids about the news, we very quickly realized that uh, our family was divided into two teams. There was team boy, and there was team girl, right? We've got three girls at home, and we've got team girl and team boy, and everyone in our family is particularly passionate about the camp that we've chosen for the baby on the way. And we tend to do this with things in life, don't we? We tend to divide into teams. You've got team Costco and team Sam's Club. You've got team iPhone and team Android, team Democrat, team Republican, team Mac versus PC, team, hey, it's Friday night, let's go out when coronavirus doesn't have everything shut down. And team, hey, it's Friday night, can we put on stretchy pants and eat ice cream? Like, you've got teams in life. In our house, we have team ketchup and team ranch. It's the condiment of choice. Everyone is aligned, and they're making disciples. So as you think about it, I am sure in your own family and in your own life, you can identify the different teams that you have set up. And this morning, as we come to the Bible, we're going to see the same dynamic from the Bible. The Bible is going to tell us this morning that there's team worldliness and there's team godliness. Team worldliness and team godliness. And these two teams are pitted against each other so that you can't have your foot in one and one foot in the other. But here's what makes that so hard for us as followers of Jesus. We've been drafted to play on one of those teams, but we're very apt to switch jerseys, right? So let's take a look at James 4 this morning, starting in verse 1, and let's see this dynamic of worldliness versus godliness and what God has to say about it from his word. Join with me starting in James chapter 4, verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I love how blunt and refreshingly honest the Bible is sometimes, right? When's the last time that you got into an argument with someone? Anybody get into an argument this week? I guess I'm the only one. I could probably count a couple that I got into this week, right? For those of you who are particularly contentious, when's the last time that you had a spirited debate with someone? Why did that happen? 
why did you end up in an argument with that person? Some of you would answer that question by saying, well, it happened because they wouldn't keep their mouth shut. Or you'd say, it's because they said something hurtful or ignorant. Or this wouldn't have been an issue if they hadn't done X, Y, or Z. But what does the Bible say this morning in James chapter 4, verse 1? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Uh Uh-oh. Now hear me. There are times when there are good fights to have. There are legitimate wrongs that have been committed, and there are words that need to happen to address the situation. But 99 times out of 100 in your life, when you have an argument, it's because someone has done something that caused you to draw a line in your heart and say, I deserve better. You can't say that to me. I don't think that's fair. I'm not wrong. You're stepping on my toes. You're not giving me what I want. Is that not what we see in these verses? You desire and you don't have. You covet, you can't obtain. You ask and you don't receive because the end goal is what? Your passions and your desires. In fact, in these first three verses, the word you or some derivative of that is used 12 times. Now listen, there's a part of me that really wants to go down the trail here this morning of talking about conflict here because generally I think as I survey the landscape of America and even inside the church, I think as a culture we don't know how to have conflict. We've learned in our digital age to hide behind our keyboards and to speak with a boldness and an openness online that we can't do in person, otherwise we'd get throat punched. We have totally blurred the line between opinion and fact and person and personality. So when we actually experience real conflict in real life with real people, we legitimately don't know how to do it because we're really used to surrounding ourselves with people who mostly just affirm our viewpoints and tell us that we're right. And if we hear otherwise from people, we can just block them or go and find someone else that will pat us on the back for believing what we think we ought to, right? But conflict isn't the point here. I'd love to camp out on that. That's a whole other sermon series, but that's not the point here. In fact, if you look in James chapter 3, verse 18, that verse that we, dis- uh, that we discussed last week is so poignantly um, direct and, and purposeful about how to handle conflict. It almost resolves the issue of conflict for us. It says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, it's the idea of reaping fields upon fields of righteousness and goodness by people whose end goal is what? Making peace. Half of y'all's marriages, relationships with parents or co-workers or friends would dramatically improve today if you would stop trying to be right and win an argument and instead would focus on being right with that person and winning the relationship back, making peace. Not ignoring wrongs, but showing up to the fight without a sword, without a shield, and then bulldozing the path of strongholds and, and rights that you lay claim to on the way to that conversation. Conflict isn't the point here, though. The point 
is that all of this stuff in verses 1 through 3, all of this stuff in verses 1 through 3 is symptomatic of a life that is deeply focused on one thing. You. I want this. I need that. I deserve this. I'm entitled to that. My passions, my desires, my goals, my opinions. I'm in charge of my life. My way is best. No one can stop me from getting the things that I want. I want God to bless this. I'm going to draw a circle around all the things that I want, and God is going to bless me and give me those things. That's the new target for my life. And if I don't get those things, and if my way doesn't reign supreme, then there is going to be words or conflict or fighting or something because no one or no thing should stand between me and getting what I want. That's the point of verses 1 through 3. And you know what happens when we end up doing that? Have any of you ever lived a season of your life, or maybe you're in that right now, where the number one person that you're trying to please is you? How has that ended up for you? Man, I'll tell you what, it is sorely disappointing. Doesn't care about giving me what I want. It really doesn't. And God is not sitting up in heaven right now going, man, Chris is such a good dude. He loves me a lot. You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to make today about him. I'm going to make sure that he gets what he wants. He deserves that. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. God's primary motivation for your life Listen to me, Christian. God's primary motivation for your life is to make sure that you would know how majestic and glorious and magnificent and wonderful and worthwhile He is. And that you would remember of yourself, as we'll see next week in verse 14, that you are like a mist that appears and then vanishes. God has been the most satisfying, worthwhile, majestic being for all of eternity. And we tend to show up as people and say, for the 50, 60, 80, 90 years that I have on this earth, I'm a big deal. And what James tells us from his word this morning is that this kind of self-centered, self-gratifying, me-first mentality that causes you to be about your passions, your desires, your needs, and then elbowing out anybody who gets in the way is a mark of worldliness. That's really the first point here for you. The source of worldliness is selfishness. But that's not the way that we've been called to live as followers of Jesus, is it? Look at verse 4. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world, which is this kind of self-centeredness, this self-focus that we see in verses 1 through 3, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, strife, conflict with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? What does that mean? Listen to me, Christian. God is particular for you. God is particular for you. Paul instructs the Corinthian church about not 
running out and joining their bodies to sinful things, saying, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6. God loves you, church. God loves you, Christian. He loves you. He redeemed you. He ransomed you. He bought you. He picked you up out of the the mess of sin in your life and the broken habits that used to mark your life, and he gave you a new position and a new hope and a new future, and he didn't have to do any of that. He did it because he is insanely gracious, and so he says, no, no, Christian, I don't want you to cozy up to the world. I don't want you to to tie your life to this way of living that used to mark your life. I don't want you to make your life such that the, the main object of your affections and your attention is yourself and that the main person that you're trying to please and the motivation behind your decisions is to fulfill your passions and your desires and then get mad when you don't get your way. I'm jealous for you. I've made you my people. I don't want you to live like or look like or fight like the world. I don't want you to get this tunnel vision where it's all about you and then you get irritated when it's not. I want you to be magnificently and boldly raucous about proclaiming that I am worthwhile and that your life is as nothing to you compared to knowing me. That's really good news this morning. That's really good news this morning because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at making a mess of my life. Right? I'm pretty good about falling in love with the wrong things. I'm a pretty crummy ruler of my own world. In my world, the bumper cars, the bumpers on the, the cars of, of, of the people in my life, none of them say, Chris 2020, make Chris great. Again, keep Chris great. That doesn't exist. Nobody is voting me into office in my own life, except for me. I need a gracious God to step in and say, look, Chris, you can't have this both ways. Brother, I'm going to be honest with you. You're either going to run down this path of worldliness where you think that you know best and where it's about you and fulfilling what you want and what you need because you think it's going to make you happy, You can run down that path and line up against me or you can cast aside this worldly thinking and worldly living and see it for what it is. Something which brings you no joy, no life, and is completely against your new identity in me. You can't have it both ways. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so what do we do with that? Because we're all along that spectrum somewhere today, aren't we? We're all along that spectrum somewhere today. I don't know that, that anybody who's, who's here, anybody who's showing up at a church on Sunday morning and in any place across America says, you know what, I've nailed this. There's not a worldly bone in my body. I have drowned out all noise from my sinful nature. I, ha- I can't even remember the last time that I was about me. So we're all along that spectrum somewhere today, aren't we? But what does the Bible have to say about it? Look at verse 6. What is the response to all of this? It says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen, for every ounce of worldliness that you brought in here this morning, God has a metric ton of grace to dump on top of that. Lay down your pride, lay down your selfishness, and come humbly before God. That's the second thing I want to point out to you this morning. The solution for worldliness is submission. Is submission. Let's see what that looks like starting in verse 7. Take a look at, at James chapter 4, verse 7 with me. Okay, here's the antidote to this, this worldliness. It says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. For years early on uh, in my life, I was a student pastor. When I graduated college, I was married I had a goatee, I liked to eat pizza, I owned a guitar, and I loved Jesus. And that's like the 2000s youth minister starter pack right there, right? That's all you got to have. If I'd had a Jeep Wrangler, I would have completed the set, but I didn't. That's the only thing that stood between me and hitting it big time. Didn't have the Jeep. Um, But one of the things that I heard from students a lot over the years when I was a student pastor was this really common theme. I'd hear these students say, hey, Chris, here's the deal. I I really want to be godly, but I just don't know how. Like, I really want to love Jesus, but I just don't know how to do that. It's so hard. I mean, like, I'm over here doing this thing, and all my friends are doing this thing, but the Bible tells me to do this instead, and it's just, how how do I make that pivot? Like, I just, I don't know how to stop that and and to do this thing instead, but but I really want to. And so I don't think that's a challenge that's unique to students. I think it's a challenge that a lot of us face. And so this set of verses right here in James 4 is one of the places I would typically go with students and I would say, hey, let's take a look at this together because I I understand that challenge. I understand what it's like to be in the world and and, and to live like the world and and to have your eyes opened and to see Jesus for who he is and and to, to question how do I make that pivot? How do I make that move. And so I would typically go to this place and I'd give them an encouragement. I'd say, hey, why don't you try this? Hey, why don't you put down the Xbox controller? Why don't you put down your phone? Why don't you log out of social media? And why don't you put your face inside this book? Right? And what I want you to do is I want you, I want you to, to listen to three key things here, student, from James 4 that, that really mark the life of a person who is aiming to be more like Jesus. And I promise you, if you'll just adopt this almost like a playbook, look, this isn't the whole thing, but if you'll adopt this almost like a playbook, I promise you, you're going to start taking steps toward living for Jesus. And so, what are those things? What are those things that I want us to see this morning? Look at verse 7. The first is resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Listen, I feel like bad televangelists have really robbed us as a church from being willing to talk about this, but spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is real. It's not like what you typically see in movies or The Exorcist or anything like that, but there are real fallen spiritual beings that can tempt and influence and provoke. And we are called as believers to test the spirits, First John 4. We're called to watch out 
1 Peter 5, not every emotion, listen, not every emotion or feeling that you have is neutral and biological and just supposed to be embraced. Not every piece of advice or every word that is given is grounded in truth. The lures of spiritual warfare are often covert in our lives and they masquerade as wisdom of this age or they spring up on us like a trap with blatant and obvious temptation. And our call as believers is to resist and to stand firm. This is not a passive action. The language here in James chapter 4 is militaristic. It is to wage war against the things that want to push us away from letting our thought life and our affections and our emotions and our hope rest in Jesus. And we can do this with confidence, right? Believer, we can do this with confidence because the spiritual forces of evil don't have the final say, do they? They don't. Your sinful nature inside of you doesn't have ultimate control if you're in Jesus. Romans 6.6 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken us except that which is common to man. And God will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but along with temptation will provide the way of escape. We are able in Jesus to stand firm and resist the spiritual forces that want to lure us into sin, whether those are coming externally or whether they are coming internally from our old sinful nature. So resist the devil. The second is in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How do we draw near to God? I feel like this is something that most of us, if we've been around church at all, have been hearing since the days of Vacation Bible School, right? It's not hard. It's very easy to understand. We read his word. We pray. We find other people who are walking with Jesus, and we say, hey, You love Jesus. Let's do life together. You find someone who's older in the faith than you and you say, hey, it seems like you've been doing this longer than me and and, and may just have some wisdom that I could benefit from. Will you help me learn to be more like Jesus? I want to live my life in such a way that when I'm 50 or when I'm 60 or when I'm 30 or when I have kids or when I get married, that, that my life looks like Jesus the way that I see your life look like Jesus. We challenge ourselves, draw near to God. We challenge ourselves not to settle in to stale patterns of church attendance and volunteerism without ever getting plugged in to the life of the church. Listen, do you guys want to get tired of church real quick? You want to get tired of church real quick? Serve and attend and listen and sing and give and drag your kids out the door on Sunday morning with half of them not having eaten breakfast, half of them complaining about their shoes and their uncomfortable clothes, and never, ever, ever get alone with Jesus. That's a really easy way to say, nope, I'm done. Never hear what he's doing about in other people's lives. Never read his word. Never feel conviction and gladness from being in the scriptures. That's a really easy way for Jesus to get old real quick. Maybe that's you this morning. If that's the case, listen. If that's the case this morning, listen. The Lord would want you to hear this. Go to the source. Meet with Jesus. Draw near. And he 
will. doesn't say might. doesn't say it's going to happen overnight either. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And if that's hard for you this morning, if that's hard for you this morning, don't do it alone. God has given you people in the church. That's why He saves us and brings us into a body and doesn't say, cool, I love you, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, go be about yourself and follow me by yourself. He brings us into the church so that we have people to help us out along the way and we don't have to walk in isolation. The third thing is this. Take your sin seriously. That's really what's being said here when it says in verse 8 and verse 9 to cleanse your sin or cleanse your hands and, and purify your hearts. The, the, the point here when you read verses 9 and 10, it almost sounds strange. We're not used to this kind of language in the church where it says be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound like a fun Sunday morning passage. You don't teach that in kids' ministry, right? Take your sin seriously. I think James is trying to say here, hey, Christians, stop living in a candy land of happiness where it's always sunny and you can tune out the nagging sense that you're walking in disobedience, if that's the case. Take your sin seriously. Consider where it's visibly present, your hands. Consider where it's taken hold in your heart and your mind and then root it out. 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. James 5, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. There's an element church about taking our sin seriously, not because we're afraid of God, not because we're afraid of punishment, but but because we recognize it for what it is. It's like pouring water into the gas tank of a Ferrari. It will stall you out, and it will make your experience anything other than what it was really designed to be, which is living in fellowship with Jesus. And so we boldly and unapologetically confess and admit where we fall short, that we may be restored and enjoy the right relationship that we have with Jesus. Those three things I know are so simple in concept, but those three things, resisting the devil, pushing back on our sinful nature and taking our sin seriously, drawing near to God, are how we submit to him and say, you know, I don't want what this world offers. There's no life in it. I'm not the solution here. This isn't about me. I want to be like you, Jesus, and I want to be about you. And by doing these things and making them a habit, we train ourselves, or rather we're trained by the Spirit to do as verse 10 says, which is humble ourselves before the Lord that He may exalt us. Those steps are how we shift our alignment from being about the world to being about Jesus. So we've seen the source of worldliness, we've seen the solution for worldliness, and so now what does it look like for the one who is living in godliness to conduct themselves. Let's read verses 11 through 12, and we'll see this last thing. It's just a a snapshot of one of the ways that those who live in godliness live their lives. Verse 11, it says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The last thing that I want us to see from the text this morning is that living in godliness is seen by how we speak 
of others, right? If you break out of this navel-gazing focus on you, 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 your perspective, your rights, your opinions, your wants, your needs that we saw in verses 1 through 5, and you deeply and richly connect with Jesus, then how does it affect the way that you treat others? Well, instead of being a critic and a judge and condemning them and assuming their motives, you can instead focus on what is good and right and true. Obviously, there are going to be times in life. There are going to be times in marriage. There are going to be times in parenting. There are going to be times in the church where correction is needed and right evaluation of what is going on is needed and proclamation of truth that may be uncomfortable is needed. But the exhortation here is not to assume the role of Lord and judge over those in the body of Christ and use your words or your keyboard to tear them down, but to trust the one who reads the heart to be the final judge of all things. We are instead called to be people, as we learned about last week in James 3, who live according to the wisdom from above, which is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Do you see how this starts to all tie together? Do you see how this starts to all tie together? Do you see how the tamed tongue of the believer in James 3 who seeks peace in James 3 has no room for quarreling in James 4 who can't go against his brother and say, you know what? I'm not God here, but I've got some things to say to you about your life, and I'm pretty sure I know where you're coming from. Do you see how this ties together with with James 2 of being people who, with our mouths, show no partiality, who, James 1, are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. In fact, as we get into James 5 next week, there's, there's going to be an emphasis on how the speech, the things that are said by the believer, continue to, to be traced out. And so this, this idea of living in godliness is being seen by how we speak to others is not just here. In James 4, it's across the entire book. One of the greatest indications of your heart as a believer is the words that come out of your mouth. I think Jesus said that. And so, there's no room for those of us who've been redeemed and have cast aside the world and have bought into the idea of living in godliness to stand as judges and critics of those in the body of Christ without trusting the Lord as the judge of all. I long that we would be people, church, C3, who in our speech with each other and with our spouses and with our parents and with our children and with our coworkers would speak life. Not just when it's easy to do the Christian thing, but especially when it's hard. And so listen, as we talk about this this morning, Some of you may not remember the last time that you could say, man, I really feel like I'm on the team for godliness. Some of you may not remember the last time that you could say, I feel like I'm on the team for godliness. Maybe you've become numb to it. 
Maybe you've just been doing this on your own for so long, it just feels more comfortable to do that instead. Maybe you're like, man, I've never been on that team. If I'm really honest this morning, I am fairly certain that I've never really been about Jesus. I've been about church. I've been about being moral or good or kind, but I don't know that I've ever really been about Jesus. I don't know that I've ever put that jersey on. And if that's you this morning, whether, whether that's you or whether you're the person who's just like, man, I've just strayed so far away from the glory years of loving Jesus, my plea with you is the same. There is grace to cover your selfishness. There's grace to cover your sin. There's grace to cover the years of living your own way. Submit, therefore, to God. Draw near, and he will draw near to you. It starts with the cross of Jesus. It starts with the cross of Jesus where we remember the punishment that he took upon himself that you and I deserve. 